Welcome to Liturgy and Longing, an eight-week limited series podcast about the church and the COVID-19 pandemic. We'll begin each episode with a question and invite each of our participants to introduce themselves and answer the question in turn. However, this week, it being our first week, I wanted to give you a little bit of background on why we've chosen to do this podcast. So I'm Carl Stevens. I'm a priest in Columbus. And a few weeks ago, as the COVID-19 pandemic was forcing us all out of our churches and into our homes, um, I realized I needed people to think through both the worship and the theology of the church with. And so I called upon three close friends, Jason Oden, Jane Gertson, and Di McCullough, to help me think this through, and they have graciously agreed to be part of this podcast. So, going again to our opening question, uh, we'll use a process of mutual invitation. So, Di, I'll ask you this question first, and once you've introduced yourself, however you want to introduce yourself, and spoken to the question, you can ask whoever you would like to speak next. So our question for today is, what are you longing for, Di McCullough? Uh, what I'm longing for um, is transformation and a much wider, more expansive unity. I'm hoping that when we come out of this, we won't go back to normal, but we will have experienced things that help us connect um, to broader Christendom in ways that we have not been doing. Um, and I guess my introduction is that I am a seminary trained layperson, um, also a trained cha hospital chaplain and spiritual director. Right now I'm a stay at home mom. Um, and maybe the best occupational description is rabble rouser right now. Um, so that's, <laughs> That's what I'm longing for, is a little rabble-rousing transformation. I don't know Jason at all, so it's his answer that I'm most curious about next. <laughs> That's funny because your answer is very similar to mine um, in many ways. So I'm Jason Oden. I am a priest um, in Cincinnati, newly ordained about a year ago. And um, I think, you know, when this all started, I was actually on the docket on the schedule to write the sermon kind of that, that Sunday around March 22nd, 23rd. I mean, somewhere when all this kind of began for us. And I think for me, the message to the congregation was that we like, we can't go, we can't have this like desire to go back to the way things were like, we have to move forward and we have to allow this experience to transform us and to um, create something new and so I think, I mean, exactly what Di said. I mean, I, I don't want to go back to the way things were. And not that in the way things were were inherently bad. I just think that this is an opportunity for growth to happen and for transformation to take place. And so I'm pretty excited about the future. Um, and so that's, that's uh, for the most part right now. I mean, who knows what I'll... I'll agree with what I just said in the next six months, but, but, uh, that's what I, that's how I would answer it. So Jane, um, I'll ask you, how would you answer that question? Oh, well, I think, um, 
Well, first of all, I am also an Episcopal priest and have been serving for the last eight or nine years on our bishop's staff here in Southern Ohio, dreaming of new forms of church, new ways of cultivating Christian community. And so, and just recently have started serving um, alongside a parish here um, in Cincinnati. So feel like I'm asking this question in a really interesting time because in many ways I've been wondering, proposing, dreaming about what it could, what it would take to transform the church, what kind of new Christian communities and new practices might help us grow into this sort of rabble rousing that you're describing, Di. Um, I used to say part of my job was to stir up the imagination of the church. Um, and so it's taken me both like backwards and forwards, which maybe is the entire point of liturgy in the first place. But it was reminding me of when I first began looking at fresh expressions of church, I met a a man who became a dear friend. His name's Emmanuel Tashimi and is, um, a immigrant from Rwanda. And I remember when Emmanuel and I first started, um, meeting, he, he told me that the Rwandan refugee community missed singing songs in their own language. And it led me to, it led both of us to begin to imagine what a fresh expression of church that might arise out of that longing might look like. And in many ways, I think that's what liturgy and spiritual community does. It helps us make sense of time and space by elevating us out of the ordinary and seeking to gain perspective and unite our time with God's time. And so I think as I wonder about what I'm longing, how to sing God's song in this strange land, I feel too somewhat excited by the opportunity to imagine a dispersed church that's left the building and has been forced to reimagine what it means to have people gathered in a whole variety of places. And I think I'm hoping that that may lead to the kinds of transformation that you both are describing. So I'll pass on to Carl and Carl, you've said a little bit about how this podcast, you know, the hope for this podcast began, but what is it that you're longing for this time? Truthfully, uh, what I'm longing for is the Eucharist. I have to say, I, um, and, and this will give a little preview of our discussion to come in this podcast, but I was reading, um, the, the part of Mircea Eliade's, uh, sacred and profane that, that Jane sent to all of us, um, which I haven't read since college. So it was really fun to read it again, but, um, it made me realize that one part of me is is what Eliade would call a primitive at heart. Yeah, um, that I have this kind of deep understanding that what we do in the liturgy actually helps to sustain the cosmos. Um, that we are participatory with God in the in the sustenance of the cosmos, um, and Eucharist for me is the rite that does that. Um, I don't know why that is. I haven't thought deeply enough about why that might be, but, um, it is. And so I really feel, I feel in some way that the cosmos is endangered by not being able to take the bread and the, and the wine. Um, so there we are. That's what I am longing for. 
Um, all right. So I just want to comment on that and to say that I think um, that sense that we're longing for both the like I think I didn't know before this moment how much I would long for the physicality of communal gathering um and that yes I hope that this moment transforms us but I mean I mean I'm not even a musician but Mm -hmm. I really miss singing in community yeah and it's it's not that I don't miss the Eucharist I desperately miss that too but I think I miss the sound of making music together um, as a sort of communal act um, and didn't say that as explicitly before. So appreciate your clarity around that, Carl. Sure. So part of our practice for this podcast is after we do an opening circle, one person is going to curate the discussion. The topic for this first of our eight part series is season and s- and sacred time. And Jane, you are our curator for today. So take it away, Jane. Yeah. Well, so I think we are beginning by just asking these questions about liturgy in the midst of this other time that we find ourselves in, um, which is the time of COVID-19 living through a pandemic, um, experiencing the reality of the world that we're in. And in some ways, I think it feels like we're living in some kind of perpetual groundhog day. Like, you know, we could just keep repeating the same thing over and over again. Um, I think it's somewhat humorous that when this all began, people began posting on social media, like today's Tuesday, um, just in case anyone's (laughs) forgotten. Uh, And in other ways, it sort of feels like the clock has stopped. Like time has either stopped or slowed down. Um, And so I guess I begin by wondering how we're processing time right now. In the church, there's an ancient tradition of marking the hours with prayer. And I've seen lots and lots of people of faith kind of picking up this ancient tradition of uh, prayer at certain points in the day. And yet I think we also more recently have as a church have processed time by moving through the seasons of the church year. Um, We talk about that as a liturgical calendar, but in many ways I remember a child once calling it God's clock. Um, But this this circular kind of cyclical um, coming and going of, of the seasons. And so Advent sort of representing this anticipation and Christmas season of a kind of birth and Lent as a time of turning back. Um, Easter offering us new life and moving into the seasons of Pentecost and ordinary time and then returning to Advent as we keep going around the circle year after year. And there's also feasts and holy days. So we literally have just finished Holy Week, following Jesus through his final days, entering Jerusalem on Palm Sunday in celebration and sharing a final meal with his friends, praying in the garden, being arrested and then executed put in the tomb and finally on Sunday experiencing the empty tomb as a church so I'm thinking about this question the other day and why it matters particularly to me that's one of the questions Carl encouraged us to ask and I think for me it's because I tend to be much more of a Kairos person than a Kronos person like I'm really bad at schedules and keeping track of time and being on time 
Um, not as an excuse, but just definitely a weakness of mine. It's just not a natural skill for me. And I feel like I just tend to pay attention to what's happening in the moment. Um, I actually have a memory of being a child and my mom calling me over and over and over again, and I just didn't hear her. So, and even today, my husband will be talking to me and I'll realize I've just not heard anything he said because I can get lost in things like a book or a conversation or prayer or just being in the moment. Um, yeah, I think for me, the work of being a leader of a spiritual community is in noticing, like really paying attention to what's happening both in ourselves and in the community that we're a part of. And I think the times I lead best, at least, is out of a deep knowledge of what is needed right now and of paying attention to the present moment. And I also was remembering a time when I was in a spiritual direction group and the spiritual director asked us to reflect on whether we were finding ourselves as we thought about the seasons of the church year. Um, and especially in this holy, these holy days that we've just gone through. Um, if we find ourselves in the garden, or perhaps suffering on the cross or in the tomb, or if we're experiencing the resurrection in our own lives. And being willing to acknowledge that sometimes our interior space may not always match the exterior, that the season we're in in our own personal lives perhaps isn't the same as the season that the church is in or that other people are in. So I guess I want to invite you all to reflect on these questions. Um, and maybe just the question is, what time is it now? Either for you personally or also for the community that you find yourself in. As you think about this time that we're in, um, perhaps you could answer it based on like which of the seasons you find yourself in or even kind of the what kind of what time of day is it? Um, you can, you can kind of answer that literally and or figuratively as, as you feel called, but what time is it? So, I mean, right off the bat, the, I mean, the thought that I have about what time I'm in, I guess, I mean, if I was going to use the, the, the four locations that you use, I'd, I'd probably have to go with the garden, um, However, that, I mean, the connotations of that might be different. I mean, when I think about it, because I think of, I hear the word garden and I'm going to think something more bucolic or something peaceful. But I think about in the context of Jesus, it's kind of something that's pretty stressful um, and anticipation. So it might be, it actually might be a little bit of both. I mean, because right now I'm in a moment of, um, I think kind of re, um, refocusing on some priorities of mine and some goals and objectives that I've been wanting to accomplish for a long time. And I think the way things were prior to COVID-19 were pretty, pretty hectic and, and got me pretty distracted. So now that I'm not as frenetic, I think, um, and I kind of stay in one single location every day, I've, I've kind of gotten into a rhythm and, and I, some of those marking the days with prayers has really helped that helped with that. And I, I mean, I've even talked with Carl before we did this podcast, just about the desire to pray more. And this, this experience, this event has actually 
helped facilitate that for me. Um, but so, I mean, it's, it's helped me. I would go back to that idea. It's, it's the time where I'm refocusing on my, on objectives. And I, and while that is really life-giving and exciting, it's also very stressful um, because there's, I mean, I mean, so, I mean, it's not a secret. I know a lot of people, a lot of people probably don't know this about me, but I, in the midst of everything that I'm doing, I'm also writing my dissertation, um, particularly on um, really, it's really about pilgrimage and sacred space, but particularly how, uh, how Paul, um, the apostle Paul would have engaged in pilgrimage to the temple and the assumptions that we have when we look at Paul and like, we have all these assumptions that of course he wouldn't be engaging the temple after, after Jesus. So it's, so that's my research. So, um, focusing on that, sometimes I, it's amazing to me, honestly, I kind of seems like it's disconnected from what I do, but it's amazing how it's kind of tied in very well with what we're doing. So right now it's just a time, it's a, a recentering time. And, you know, as far as to how it aligns with the, maybe the season of the year right now, I think, you know, I kind of see the cross as, as I even talked about this in my little um, reflection this morning on, on morning prayer was the cross isn't, you know, you know, that Mark 16, that verse eight, kind of that, that short ending, you know, and all the disciples are, you know, terrified and afraid and everybody thinks that's where Mark ends, you know, and then this scribe probably most likely, comes in, adds a longer ending, kind of takes, you know, um, traditions from all the gospels in the book of Acts and just kind of creates this little compressed version of kind of what happens after the cross. And then, but I think the message is that it's like the cross isn't a moment where we, we hide and go in hiding at the moment where we go out into the world and we, and we we're empowered and we move into the world and we, we, you know, change the world, you know, from Jerusalem out. And so, um, it's also a moment kind of a, I feel like this is a moment where I'm kind of, I've recentered around the cross and moving out and, you know, and the resurrection is propelling. So I don't know. That's my, that's where I'm at right now. I don't know. What do you, what about you, Di? I'm thinking of it in two different ways. Um, the first way that I'm thinking of it is, so the congregation that I worship with is between rectors right now. We're actually between all clergy right now. I spend about half a day singing, you pick the fine time to leave me, Lucille. Um, <laughs> but, um, but that means that when I'm thinking about time, I'm thinking a little bit about seasonal time. And I want to speak to that. But the first thing that I'm thinking about as I'm um, trying to be supportive of my fellow congregants um, is that we all have a different internal orientation to time. Um, some of us are kind of rammy and looking forward to the future. Others of us are seeking security in a really stable present. And, um, there's that third group that's looking back with longing. And as I'm trying to navigate with my fellow worshipers, this weird time of COVID-19, it's been really important to me to try to be sensitive to, those inward facings of the people around me, because if I only speak from mine, I'm going to lose people. Um, so that's one piece of the time bit. My natural inclination is to put my shoulder down and push really hard forward. Um, 
but we lose people if we're not speaking their language. So how we are oriented to time is really important to me right now. But the time that it feels like, the seasonal time that it feels like to me is Easter. But I think Easter is chaos and confusion. I don't think it's ribbons and new dresses and a tidy lawn with plastic eggs. Um, It's not clear. We still don't all agree as Christians on exactly what the cross and resurrection means. There are several different theologies of those things. Um, And we, there's nothing, there's nothing about the gospel that suggests to me that life with Jesus is comfortable or uncomplicated. And I think that if we're looking to ritual or to the liturgical year to provide those things, we might be in trouble. So I think we're in Easter. <laughs> but in Easter, you know, Jesus, there's resurrection, but then Jesus is gone again. And none of the things that we thought we were being saved from have passed away entirely, except death. And even that, we don't have a full understanding of how it works. So I do think that we're in Easter. I think something transformative is happening, and I think we have no idea what's going on. Um, and I'm really hopeful about that. <laughs> so that's, that's where I am. Um, how about you? Yeah. Well, I, you know, that's that's really useful, Di, um, because I what I was thinking about was um, when I was a, a somewhat emo young man, <laughs> Um, I used to joke that I wanted to live in the Church of Eternal Lent um, because it was the season that that most fit my interior disposition. You know, I I I liked the gloom. Not I mean, I didn't really like the gloom, but I felt the gloom within myself. So when I would go to church and feel gloom, I'd be like, "Oh, I'm not alone, and this this gloom is sanctified by God, and it's all okay." Um, which I still believe, but I. You know what I re- I've been sitting here realizing is uh, I am no longer that person, and Lent is no longer the season that I would adhere to in- internally. Um, I think I think Easter is the season that I adhere to internally more than any other. Um, so it's really helpful, Di, to to think like, yeah, Easter is chaotic. I mean, I think mm-hmm. I think I adhere to its placement in the season of the year. Because I associate it, you know, with warm weather and walks and flowers blooming. And um, if I were in Australia, for instance, I don't know if I would have the same kind of mental and spiritual alignment to it as the season. Um, but there is something about, you know, it's so like I've been noticing the trees on my walks and some of them still have last fall's dead leaves clinging to the branches um, which maybe is symbolically like that chaos you're, you're speaking of, that it's all sorts of things mixed together. There is actually no hard break between Lent and Easter. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Yeah, I love that too. I love that sense that there's this mix all wrapped up together in Easter. Even what you were describing, die of the people in your faith community, kind of this mix of people who are so ready for the future and those who are nostalgic for the past. And you look at the Easter stories that come during Easter season, and we see that that's exactly where the followers of Jesus were too, right? Mm -hmm. Like 
remember that time? And there's a lot of the storytelling that goes on in this season that, you know, the time that Jesus did this or the time that Jesus met us here. Um, and this longing for a future that will be different from the past. Um, and that perhaps part of resurrection is that it's all wrapped up with denial and fear and hope and wonder kind of all together simultaneously. It's not, and that's the chaos. I think it's not just one pure emotion of joy, which I think we've been led to believe um, at times. So I wonder a little bit about how normal time gets intersected by sacred time. There's a kind of intervention into the mundane. And um, I don't think that Christians are the only ones who experience this. I think many faith traditions do. Certainly sort of there's a sort of retelling of the past in a way that then becomes part of the present. Um or re-remembering that transforms us or transforms the present moment. And so I'm wondering, I'm wondering kind of how you're noticing that, um, and this does go to some of what um, Mercia Iliad talks about, um, but this idea of kind of how sacred time works um, in our lives and how we begin to understand that it takes us, um, from one moment into kind of another moment and that it, it both connects us and creates sacred space and sacred time. Um, he references eruptions of the sacred, um, <laughs> which I love that phrase that there are like moments where, we sort of are brought out of our current work, this sort of day-to-dayness into this other world. And in some ways that happens a lot in our sacred buildings and our churches, but can it happen now? Can it happen in our homes and in our families? Can it happen when we're alone? Mm-hmm. What do you, how are you all experiencing that sense of sacred time as moving us from the mundane into something that is set aside as a separate time for transformation or healing. Uh, before, before we answer that question, can we bre- say just a brief word for the listeners about um, what the mercy is, what the Eliade is and, and who he was? So I think just briefly, uh, Mercia Eliade was a um, Romanian historian of religion and a sort of philosopher, a professor. Um, he helped, I think, interpret the religious experience. This particular um, piece called The Sacred and the Profane was published in 1963 um, and is a kind of exploration of sort of the religious experience and um how we experience both sacred time and ritual and not just in Christian tradition, but just sort of throughout all, a whole variety of uh, religious traditions throughout history, Um, everywhere from Indian, uh, from India to um, native cultures and communities to certainly the Greek and Roman and 
Christian and Jewish traditions that many of us are more familiar with. Um, right. I was, I was reminded when reading it this morning that he has um, some sympathetic words to say about cannibals, <laughs> which I found. <laughs> I was I, like, oh yeah, I forgot that was in there. I was thinking like, should I include this? I mean, you know, picking pages is the most helpful. There's a lot there. So I was like, I'm just going to pick like six pages and that's probably sufficient. And if people have read it before, they'll remember back. But yes, he is... Um, and, you know, it's certainly written with a lot of masculine language and things like that that represent a former time to a certain extent. But there's a lot of wisdom there, too. Oh, yeah, great amounts. And, you know, I mean, he's wide-ranging and tolerant. And he does say that cannibalism is a tragic expression of religion, which I appreciated. I don't know. For those of us home with small children, it feels timely. <laughs> 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 anyway um okay so what was the question you were asking about it <laughs> what was the question i was asking about it i think how we're experiencing these kind of eruptions of the sacred in the midst uh, of our mundane lives which have been really prescribed through this covid19 you know pandemic that we're experiencing which is unlike anything most of us who have been living on the planet in the last a hundred years have experienced. So we're all of a sudden confined to our homes, to our families, to, you know, much smaller groups of people. And how do we understand sacred time and sort of profane time or mundane time um, in, in our lives right now? I, I think the most, the most sacred time of my day is my, is my uh, daily walk to this uh, gelato place that I go to every day. <laughs> and I mean, it, it's still open. Yeah. I mean, you, gelato, you can, is it, you can walk, it is, you can, I mean, you can walk through and, and order it to go and, and, yeah. you know, so it's not necessarily that, you know, that gelato store has become my sacred center, but it's um, just that whole like hero's journey to, to adventure out to the, <laughs> to the gelato store and to come back. I mean, there's just something about it. that's pretty, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm partially, I'm partially kidding, but, but there, I mean, the fact that you go out and you're, you see your, you see your neighbors in ways. Uh, I, I mean, cause normally if I would go on a walk in my neighborhood, I would see maybe one person and then that person would be running or walking. And, and it was just like, you just walk by and you have no concept of that other person or even you, you, it's just not, I don't know. You don't think about it. You're not conscious of it, except for now when you go outside and you have some kind of solidarity with your neighbors as you are walking, because you, everybody is like, we are in something together and we're connected in ways we, we hadn't been before. Um, I so, love I mean, that, that part of that question. Yeah. Because I think that that's exactly what Iliade is pointing to, is that ritual, however the rituals themselves develop, out of probably things that are normal. He mentions at one point about people just, like, mending their boats. But all of a sudden, that that mundane act of going for a walk to just sort of extend ourselves into the community in some way, we begin to make meaning of it. We begin to connect and, like, almost the bonds of community are being formed or reformed through this sort of ritual going for a walk each day to 
engage the world around us. Yeah, but uh, so I, one, I love the fact that you described it as a hero's journey. So you like have a rumbling in your stomach. It's your call to adventure. <laughs> yeah. You you meet a Yoda-like mentor along the way who advises you that the raspberry is particularly good today. Um, yeah. One could go on and on. But I, but the, the interesting thing about it, and I, I'm sitting here trying to figure out how to think about this, is um, Eliade, at least when talking about his quote-unquote primitive religions, you know, says that these rituals are connected with a sense of a cosmic first ritual, like we are enacting what the divine did in an act of creation or yeah. in an, an act of sustenance. So I, you know, now I'm just imagining on the first day, God eating gelato, uh, which is kind of lovely. I mean, that would be like a Sabbath, wouldn't it? Like a, a, an enactment of a Sabbath moment. The first day would be the Sabbath day. No, no, no. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm wandering all over the place. I'm saying that that uh, it would actually be a seventh day event. Of course, right, it would right. be the the eating of the gelato is the enactment of the Sabbath. Or so, just the, yes, I think the sense of like savoring what has been created. Um, yeah. And so there is right. this kind of culmination of all that has preceded it has allowed this particular moment to you know, uh, to be experienced with a sense of depth or meaning that might not have been understood before. Well, and I mean, Absolutely. I think about, and I don't want to digress into a conversation about gelato, but, <laughs> but, but yes. And I, I've, what it makes me think of is what, what things symbolize now. I mean, and how symbols change and transform based on context and, and so I don't, maybe gelato always symbolized the same, maybe it symbolizes the same thing now, but I think for me, it's just reevaluating what symbols stand for, what they signify, um, in a way. And for, you know, in a sense that, that whole journey, that whole experience, um, symbolizes something I think that it didn't used to, um, what that exactly is. I don't, I don't know if I've, figured it out but i think that's also um a, a little bit of a description of i think what we're going through now with COVID 19 and what does all this symbolize and what i mean even what is physical versus spiritual and what is spiritual when i think of, i mean i i remember you said something earlier jane you said something about you missed the physicality of something and yet everybody talks about religious stuff as spiritual and it's such a spiritual thing mm -hmm. and something that I, I think we miss out on is how physical um, religion is and, or even just sacredness is um, and maybe it's something that we have. So this is, I mean, this kind of goes back to what I said earlier. You know, I think even when Di asked me what I'm longing for, it's, just, it's not, it's not to say that everything that was wrong, we had everything wrong in the past. It was just that, I think that we, we are maybe missing, there's lacunas in the way that there's, there's, you know, there's holes in, 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 in some of our traditions that we have lost sight of because we've overemphasized certain dimensions. I think I was thinking along the same lines when I was considering this question. There are two other authors that came to mind for me, and one of them, Wendell Berry, has this great line in his 
piece, How to Be a Poet, where he says, there are no unsacred places. Mm -hmm. There are only sacred places and desecrated places. Mm. And I think the same thing is true of time, right? And that's part of what we're talking about here is, you know, the gelato is a sacred place and it's a sacred time. Um, and it is an embodiment of Sabbath. And the other, the other writer that I was thinking about, the other spiritual leader was Abraham Joshua Heschel um, and his book on Sabbath and how the practice of Sabbath, which we as Christians, right, are pretty bad about. Um, I don't think it's, I think we think about church attendance as a Sunday obligation more than we think about the fullness of a Sabbath that reorients us, that decenters us as sort of the productive middle of our own universe. And, and I think that we could use a Sabbath that kind of liberates us from capitalism a little bit, actually, also. Um, but that, um, that, that takes, that lets us be physical humans that acknowledges our physical needs and releases us from some of the obligations that we take on that aren't real needs. Um, so I think when I am thinking of rituals right now, Sabbath is really what's coming to mind. And it's partly coming to mind. You know, I just said I have a small child at home. There's no respite right now for a lot of us. Um, and my household is really lucky. My husband can work from home. I am home with our little one. Everyone is safe. Everyone is healthy. Um, this is the best case scenario and it's hard. <laughs> um, but, but if we were to observe Sabbath, in a in the way that I think it's intended, which is fundamentally liberatory, that's where some of the transformation comes in. Absolutely. Yeah, and I love your reference to the sense that, like, at their best, rituals disorient us to reorient us. That at the heart of Sabbath practice is this disorientation to the world as it existed, um, so that we are reoriented back towards what is of value and meaning um, in our lives. So yeah, so I wonder to take that idea of this moment we're living through, which is some kind of strange Sabbath and yet still longing for Sabbath. What are you noticing about liturgy and what, and this is kind of the question of this whole podcast on some level, um, but what what's working, what's not working in this time of COVID-19? What's shifting in ourselves and in our homes as we reimagine liturgical practice that meets the needs of people right now? Um, because I think you're right, Di, that like, I think people began to think about, we have to go to church to do this thing. And what is the thing actually creating what we imagined it would? Um, or is there something that we're being asked to do in this time that's changing us in a different kind of way? I don't even know if that question makes sense, but... Uh, it totally makes sense. So, I mean, as you're talking about the 
about Sabbath in particular, and I'm I'm very glad our conversation has ended up focusing around that, um, because I've been you know, I've been working on some writing um, about kind of uh, Evelyn Underhill's stages of mystic development, which I'll talk about a little bit next week uh, when I'm the curator of the episode. But um, there's this this moment where one needs to embrace purification uh, habits or methods or standards or ways of being practices. And uh, one of them is self-simplification. And I was, I was writing about it this morning and thinking about it and thinking about how I've with different groups kind of raised the point of the need to simplify our lives and how people, particularly parents with young children kind of scoff at that idea. You know, they're like, well, that's fine for monks and nuns to just go and sit and think about God, which to my mind shows a total misunderstanding of monks and nuns who are as busy as anybody else. But, um, but also, you know, just this idea, like I, I don't know how to promote myself to simplify. I don't know how to like set aside social roles. I don't know how to set aside the expectations of people around me. I just don't know how to do it. And how do I even do it? And, you know, it's easy to be like, okay, we'll all, we'll all be like Marie Kondo and just look at our socks and decide whether they spark joy. But that's not what self-simplification really is. It's not about what you own. It's about really what you do with your time. Um, and whether you give any of that time to God at all. And so recapturing a, a liturgical practice of Sabbath, whatever that might be, feels really important to the soul. I mean, I, you know, for for me, it's devotional time in the morning. And I don't know if I feel a great draw or need for an entire day of Sabbath, but that might be more my problem than anybody else's. Um, that might just be a fear of not having anything to do. Um, but, you know, the hour or two of devotional time I spend in the morning is deeply powerful and re-energizing, and I appreciate it. Kendall Brown, who's a UCC minister and was the dean of students when I was in seminary, pointed out this week is that there are communities who are already experts at um, being diaspora, at not being able to gather or to be included, um, people with disabilities, people who mm. Um, mm. emerged through the AIDS crisis um, with community intact and thriving, um, women in ministry who have struggled. I'm what I'm really hoping for is that um, is that we're able to acknowledge experts that we have not been acknowledging mm -hmm. and that we can have the humility not to reinvent the wheel, but to see the good work of God that has been done for generations and not acknowledged. Because I think that there mm -hmm. is real life in liturgies that haven't been recognized. Um, so that's where I am. There's some in the home and and that's a struggle for me too. And that's something that can grow. Um, but what I really want is for that whole breadth of the church to be seen. And for us, particularly those of us um, 
whose voices are heard more easily to recognize other leadership. You know, that, um, I'm glad that as we're coming to the end of our, of our episode, we have that point made. So, so what you're, what you're painting there dies an eschatological vision, you know, like what, what would the kingdom of heaven be like? So we've been talking about past time and present time and, and sacred time and, um, desacralized time to use Wendell Berry's analogy. Um, but now to think about a future time where uh, we can envision that the voices and the people who have not been acknowledged or heard even are suddenly heard and their wisdom is called upon and their expertise and things that we haven't had to have any expertise in um, is of benefit to the world. That's, that's a beautiful vision. Yeah, so I, I think I was reminded that in the Bishop's Lenten series, he was referencing the way that our sacred stories shape our understanding of the world. And he was specifically talking about the festival of Sukkot, um, the Jewish celebration of booths. And that in that, the people that you have to have, the, the key is that the, um, the roof of the booth has to have holes in it so that you can see the stars. And that the reason that, we, that, that the Jewish people do this is so that they will remember that they too were once homeless and Mm. that we, as we remember these stories and relive the stories and relive sacred times as a way of making sense of the present time, we need to always figure out who are those folks that we need to hear their voices. I think that's for me, the connection to what I shared. Um, and that we find our place in the story that way. We find our our way of navigating the present time by understanding both the past, but also, as you're saying, Carl, to, to point to a future way of being in the world. And I Jane, guess- Jane, go ahead. Sorry. No. I love that you bring that up because one of the things I was thinking too was, weren't there diocesan big reads timely preparation for this, both the Exodus and the early church diaspora in Acts, we've just spent two years talking about the homelessness of religious peoples. And, Hmm. you know, absolutely. And I too have been thinking about the Acts 8 story, which the church had kind of been talking about for a while, but this sense, and Jason, you touch on it a little bit, that the people who were persecuted have to flee Jerusalem, have to flee the place of the temple and the holy sites of their past and go out to Samaria to go into hiding and other places in the Judean countryside. And it is from that moment that they're hiding out in these places that the gospel begins to spread, that the story of Jesus's resurrection begins to be told in a new and different way. Um, and so, yeah, like maybe that is the real opportunity here that we have prepared ourselves by knowing these stories in a way that maybe we didn't know or haven't thought about as deeply. And that now we actually have been invited into the living it out. And that hopefully it isn't just about hmm. turning inward, but it is also a sort of turning outward, the diaspora, the sort of being in exile that we're called to now. So, 
Okay. So how would you, so if, if let's say I'm a listener and I'm, you know, cause some of this is a little bit abstract in a sense. I mean, there's like, what would you say is if I walk away from this podcast, what do you mean? Like, who should I be listening to? How does diaspora fit into my experience right now? Like who are these alternative voices? How, how do I become exposed to those? I mean, Okay, I have a crazy suggestion, and it's worked really well okay. for me. You want it? Yeah. <laughs> crazy suggestion, and I think Carl qu- cringed when I told him this weeks ago. I have learned more from Twitter, <laughs> and the reason <laughs> is that I can eavesdrop on conversations within communities without intruding on those conversations. You know, I can mm-hmm. listen to mm-hmm. Native people talking about their issues. I can listen to the disability community talking about what matters to them and what impediments are there for them and what gifts they've developed that I have not had a need to develop. And it's such an accessible way to learn. And yes, I know about all sorts of paltry Twitter fights, but it is a place that conversations happen. And it is particularly a place where people who don't have a primary microphone have a voice. Well, I just want to say that I think that there's something that is really important that we began to explore together, which is both the way in which time has been sort of suspended. And that's, I think, why we began to talk about the Sabbath, the sort of pause that we all find ourselves Mm -hmm. in. Um, mm-hmm. and the way that sacred time helps us to reimagine or refocus on the things that are meaningful and matter to us, both as individuals, but also perhaps corporately as citizens of this world, of this country, um, as, um, I think members of the church, not just a local church, but sort of the body of Christ in this moment and wondering if we are bringing together a sort of deeper knowledge of the rituals and liturgies and the word. um, And I I would add the, the, sorry, the the interrelatedness of time and space and just how those affect each other Mm -hmm. and the way that we interpret you know because of the other all right well thank you for joining us for this episode of liturgy and lawning our theme music is by brianna kelly and you can find more of her music at bandcamp at briannakelly.bandcamp.com we'll be back next week when our topic will be everyday mysticism Oh,